All right, welcome everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Today I have back on for the third time Mr. Jacob Skepis, and it will be really cool to chat with him because uh, as I've been finishing up the volume month and I interviewed some really cool people, we decided that we could extend this a little bit and get some additional perspectives on this topic. So Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time. Abel, it's a pleasure to be here and yeah, honored to be back, man. I really loved what you've been doing with the YouTube channel and the podcast uh, for a while and I think, uh, yeah, you've stepped up your game and it's been really, really good to see and uh, a lot of very productive discussions happening uh, on your show, man. So just uh, very privileged to be here. Yeah, thank you and, and absolutely, it's it's cool to chat with you because um, I've heard you being referenced by a number of the guys that I really respect. I've heard James Krieger reference uh, some of your work in his research review, and then on the famous Lyle McDonald, Mike Isratel debate, I heard Mike Isratel mention some of your experiments with trading volume and things like that. So it will be interesting to pick your brain on all of this. So um, maybe let's just start with um, a very general question. Like, how have you been thinking about all this recent uproar about the topic of training volume? Like, it's always been a talking point in the industry, but in the last year or so, uh, it's just have gotten crazy. Like, we've been talking about this much more than ever before. Was this something that impacted your thinking personally, or you were just sitting in the background and sighing a little bit about all of this? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think, a really worthy discussion because for a long time, we didn't really have as thorough an understanding uh, about training volume specifically for hypertrophy like we always uh, knew that you know intensity and the basic principle um, of exercise science progressive overload like training must get harder over time sure generally that uh, looks like just increasing you know reps or adding load we then you know from freaking you know uh, scientific management principles uh, Frederick Taylor back in you know the early 1900s uh, you know his model for planning and uh, increasing efficiency and productivity uh, in the industrial uh, industries was uh, then taken and adopted in uh, to training programs laid down the track we had Hans Selyer with uh, the gas model and that started to influence periodization and we then saw you know Matty Evan Bomper and all these kind of people start to talk about how we should plan training and uh, you know we had the traditional linear progression uh, models you know formally introduced in the 80s and 90s and whatnot Um, and I think it's been great to see uh, things transform a little bit uh, in terms of exercise science and the discussion in for lack of a better term the evidence-based community around how we should approach program design uh, from the perspective of maximizing muscle growth and I think a lot of the discussions are quite illuminating Um, they can be confusing if people don't have a thorough and foundational understanding of uh, exercise science and, you know, the operations of the different biological systems and, uh, you know, the training principles, because at the end of the day, training volume is just a variable. It's one of the acute training variables. So um, it has definitely sparked my interest uh, because I want to get big. I work with a lot of people who want to get big and I I want to get strong and so do all of my clients. So, uh, you know, it plays a role in what I do on a daily basis. So I live and breathe this stuff. So for sure, I've been uh, actively paying attention, trying to make sense of it all. And I think, you know, uh, I have a very different role, I guess, uh, to many of the people that you've interviewed previously, like whilst they have been practitioners in the past, um, you know, I'm not a, a researcher, so I'm doing my best to sort of synthesize all the information and apply it in the real world and, and trial and experiment with different things to see what works, what doesn't, um, you know, and I've run into a lot of roadblocks with certain things, uh, but also seen a lot of success with other things, uh, which I'm sure we'll discuss shortly. So, no, for sure, I, I've really loved all the discussion. I think uh, it's been great, but unfortunately, as you know, Abel, the fitness industry, uh, it's like a pendulum. It swings from one extreme to the other, high volume, high volume, high volume, and then back the other way, you know, low volume, low volume, low volume, and, you know, generally the answer lies in the middle. There's more nuance, it's context dependent, um, and we can get into that today. Yeah, yeah, and it's really cool to talk with someone who- who has more so the practical application side of things uh, nailed down more so than the theoretical uh, research side of things. And Hey, 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 <laughs> hey, I pay attention to the research, man. Not you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Um, yeah, and, and maybe that, that is one part where we could start because like, I think it's one thing to discuss whether 
you know, volume is the main driver of muscle growth. I think that's one thing to discuss from a, a theoretical perspective. Like, yeah, if we isolate these variables, then it comes out at the end that, yeah, the one variable that if we modify that, that is the most closely associated with changes in muscle size, that is volume. But it's a different thing playing around with these variables in practice when you're working with people. Like if you're looking at the progress of the people you're working with and your own progress, uh, would you say that it is true in a practical sense? Is volume the main driver of hypertrophy? Yeah, I don't know if I have an exact answer to that question. I think sometimes, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that question. I think it it comes from the right place. Like, we're trying to discern, you know, what plays a larger role in muscle growth. Is it intensity or is it volume? We kind of know that frequency, um, you know, is not a growth stimulus. It's just a way to organize uh, the training variables, intensity and volume uh, over the course of, you know, microcycles, mesocycles, et cetera, et cetera. But the way I think of intensity and volume is like this. Intensity is the key to the car. So volume is essentially uh, the engine. And you can't have one without the other because if you're just, you know, if you have a big engine but you don't start the car, you don't have sufficient intensities, uh, the car's not going to go anywhere, no matter how big the uh, engine is. Um, and even with a small engine, if you start the car, it will still move. Um, and the, yeah, the engine and how big it is, so how much volume you use, I do see to be like the horsepower of the car. So how fast the car goes, and that can just be seen as, you know, how much adaptation you get uh, per unit of uh, volume. So you, the more volume you do, the more adaptation you get. But that also comes with uh, a cost. So, you know, every training session that we do uh, imposes a stimuli. And that results in both like positive fitness adaptations and fatigue, so acute and residual that can temporarily you know, mask the expression of these adaptations. So I think uh, you can't have one without the other. And that's a big mistake I feel a lot of people make when they try to uh, determine, you know, is it volume or intensity building muscle? Yeah, it's both. Like both play a role. Um, but yeah, I think that analogy can kind of at least provide a framework for how to look at these two variables. And... I've definitely seen, uh, you know, some really good results uh, with increasing uh, volume. So, again, I think just to bring the listeners up to speed, we need to remember that the physiological training objectives for hypertrophy are to get sufficient magnitudes of tension and sufficient durations of tension. And the magnitude of tension is like the key to the car, that's the intensity, uh, the absolute load, and the duration of tension is like the exposure or the volume. That leads to a hypertrophy signal, and that will obviously hopefully shift uh, protein synthesis uh, to exceed protein breakdown. Uh, and training then needs to satisfy you know, the absolute uh, intensity requirements so that uh, it is stimulating um, or it needs to be close to failure, so the relative intensity, uh, or a combination of both, and then you need sufficient exposure, so volume. Um, but yeah, I've definitely seen uh, great results with some higher volumes, and we see that the literature generally recommends you know, 10 to 20 sets uh, per week per muscle group, um, and I think that's a, a pretty decent ballpark average. Uh, but for the most part, volume requirements should be individual dependent. Uh, someone who's a beginner who's never trained before will go to the gym and everything that they do will be an overloading stimulus. So it will be disruptive uh, and it will you know, change their muscle mass settling points. They'll get positive adaptations. So jumping straight into like 20 sets per week per muscle group for a beginner or someone who is using very little volumes, not really trained too much, probably not a good idea. Uh, so volume should be increased uh, relative to the amount that somebody's doing, provided that they uh, can not only uh, recover from it, but that they can, within an acute sense, but they can recover from it and get more overloading stimulus moving forward. Um, because volume is, is a very potent stimulus for adaptation, uh, but it also uh, has the greatest effect on fatigue. Uh, so yeah, man, I think, um, you know, volume... Uh, requirements are super individual. Uh, that's a really sort of shitty answer. Um, but uh, I think uh, they're also muscle group specific and uh, they should be incrementally, volume requirements should be incrementally uh, changed uh, relative to an individual's uh, baseline requirements uh, without you know sweeping or overhauling uh, the amount of volumes that they're doing. Um, and there should be more of a, an assessment and refinement. So, you know, basic stuff like a needs analysis, like are you growing? Are you recovering? Are you setting PBs? Are you getting extremely sore? You know, looking at things, asking really good questions, assessing the, the answers to those questions, and then refining 
uh, with small adjustments uh, as opposed to just making these you know really categorical and you know silly changes to the program. So I, I didn't really know if I answered that question, but I thought I'd just provide a bit of a framework before we go into things further. Yeah, yeah, no, that was awesome, and we have a couple of ways in which we could go from here. And maybe first, let's discuss something that um, I just discussed the other day with a guest, and that is the idea that. You know, many people, as you know, will swear by the idea that you shouldn't overthink this whole volume thing. Just get as strong as possible in the medium rep range. Like just as, as long as you can uh, facilitate progressive overload, you are doing the best you can. And I'm wondering, is that something that echoes your experience? Uh, was the key to making people bigger in your experience is to just get them as strong as possible? And so, yeah, let's just start there and we can go from there. Yeah, so again, I'm just going to draw this back to some, some basic uh, physiological uh, ideas that we've started to see emerge uh, in the research. And I'll give a huge shout out. For, firstly, I just want to really thank uh, James Krieger, Mike Isratel, and Eric Helms uh, for everything that they've been you know putting out in relation to the topic of volume uh, for hypertrophy because much of what I say is it is my own interpretation of their work um, and I try my best not to regurgitate um, things and just be a parrot of what other people say um, but they have been you know pivotal in my understanding of uh, this topic so yeah shout out to them first uh, and then to speak specifically of like the rep ranges that uh, you know we're going to see the best growth in James Craig has done some really good work um, that is sort of uh, built upon Chris Beardsley's work um, so and Bertegay has also done some work on this so you know we've got uh, effective reps uh, hypertrophic reps and stimulating reps um, and we've started to see that uh, you know the stimulus uh, for growth is pretty potent across a, a broad spectrum of rep ranges, but there are some really important differences. But to speak specifically of how we can build muscle upon uh, you know, a wide variety of rep ranges, uh, we can look to some basic concepts uh, such as Hammond size principle. So when we use uh, high absolute loads, generally like 75% of 1RM or more, uh, we're going to get some, every rep is going to be strongly hypertrophic out of the gates due to the recruitment of the high threshold motor units. Uh, and the higher rep ranges with lower absolute load, so generally anything less than 75% of 1RMX, 1RMX, are only going to be strongly hypertrophic as we take them closer to failure and, uh, you know, those we have some fatigue and those high threshold motor units are called upon. So there is no specific rep range that I think is beneficial for growth. Uh, I think you can grow in all rep ranges, and I have seen that in my experience. However, the way that you get the growth is a little bit different, and there are some trade-offs with going to either end of the uh, rep continuum. So, you know, the really low-end rep ranges versus the really high-end rep ranges, um, and I, I'll discuss those now. So, you know, this moderate rep range that uh, we generally talk about, uh, such as the 6 to 12 rep range, you know, that's generally going to be your best bang for buck uh, rep range because you get increased training economy. Uh, and what that means is, uh, you know, the last five or so reps um, of a set to failure, so of a 6 or 12 rep max, uh, those reps are going to be strongly hypertrophic. So in the 6 to 12 rep uh, max range, uh, the percentage of reps that stimulate growth is going to be pretty high. So the economy there is pretty damn efficient, right? Um, and you, you use lower absolute loads, which can preserve joint integrity when compared to the really uh, low-end rep ranges, so 1 to 6 reps. Uh, we can build muscle in the 1 to 6 rep range because, again, high threshold motor units will be recruited out of the gate. Those reps will all be stimulating. But we have to increase the total number of sets in order to achieve sufficient dose and volume or exposure uh, to the tension stimulus. That can increase the duration of the session. That has downstream effects uh, within the session and within the micro cycle in terms of residual fatigue because you get a lot of uh, systemic fatigue when you do, uh, you know, high, you lift with high absolute loads. And that can potentially, yeah, be problematic from both a time efficiency standpoint, uh, also increase the risk of injury if people don't have their technique dialed down, uh, all those sorts of things. And if we then look to the uh, other end of the rep range, so you know, 12 to 35 reps, uh, we can still build muscle there because we you know those last five reps if, of a set to failure uh, will be strongly hypertrophic, and that's great. Um, but we have an increased risk of central fatigue. So you know, if somebody's aerobic capacity is really freaking shitty. Uh, they're going to you know gas out before they can actually start getting some stimulating reps. Um, you know, the local fatigue isn't going to be the limiting factor. It's that central fatigue, right? Um, and that, that that can be a problem as well. And more specifically, when we train the really high rep ranges, uh, due to you know the central fatigue building up, it can be really hard to discern, uh, you know, 
your RPE and gauge that accurately. So I think that's another problem uh, that people can run into. So definitely from a pragmatic standpoint, the model rep ranges just make sense for the most part. And if I was to give a percentage of time that we should spend uh, training with a certain repetition range and getting like strong there and improving our performance, because that's you know really the best metric that we have uh, you know for muscle growth uh, outside of you know a muscle biopsy, right? Like not many people are going to put their hand up to do that. Uh, so and even dexes and things like that are nothing more than uh, just guesswork for the most part. Um, it's you know really it's a really good idea to assess our repetition strength across multiple sets with similar volumes over time. And if we're getting stronger, uh, generally that's a good sign that we build muscle because a bigger muscle relative to its size can produce more force and therefore we can lift more weight. Uh, so the model rep range makes sense, uh, but does that mean the high end and or well, the high and low end rep ranges uh, have no use? Definitely not because each exercise is self-selecting to certain rep ranges. Like I am not a fan of performing squats for more than 10 reps uh, for most people. It's like you can do that, but I think most people just don't have uh, the orthopedic profile, the technique uh, and the skill acquisition uh, necessary uh, to train in high rep ranges. Uh, it's just dangerous. Um, and just in the same vein, I wouldn't do bicep curls for less than 12 reps. Uh, you can, sure, but the amount of weight you have to use, it just really hurts my wrist. You know, my elbows get sore. It, it's just not really comfortable. Some people can do it, sure. You know, their orthopedic profile, the way they put together structurally uh, and functionally, they can do that. Whereas for the most part, I think a lot of people see better results for those smaller muscle groups, isolation exercises uh, for 12 to 20 reps for the most part. Uh, and again, those big multi-joint compound movements, more skill, such as your stiff leg deadlifts, your squats, your barbell bench press, you know, anywhere from one to six reps can be great. I uh, wouldn't go much lower than five for the most part. So generally, I like to spend uh, most of my time, 50% of uh, a training cycle, or you know, and that could be a micro cycle, a meso cycle, a macro cycle. Generally, a rough recommendation that uh, you know I sort of uh, abide by is 50% of my time in the moderate rep ranges, and then 25% of my time on either end of that uh, spectrum. So did I answer that question? Yeah, yeah, that was great. Um, by the way, just a random comment. Just recently, I tried doing leg extensions for sets of eight. <laughs> I think I'm going to stop doing that really quickly because... Uh... Yeah, 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 exactly right, man. And and again, there's nothing wrong with that. You can do it. And there's ways that you could manipulate that exercise to make that eight reps you know, a little bit more effective in terms of um, just feeling better. Because if you just bang out eight reps in a leg extension, uh, you're not going to get a hell of a lot out of that. But if you hold the isometric uh, contraction at both ends for one to two seconds and you have a three-second eccentric, for example, it's like that could be fine because you might get just a little bit more uh, tension stimulus. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, there's some differing effects in terms of concentric, isometric, and eccentric contractions on the effect that they have uh, you know, on growth. Uh, but for the most part, it's like that's a fine idea. But generally, uh, you know, that exercise that's going to be better suited to 12 to 20 reps, even higher, you know, depending on uh, the circumstance. Absolutely. Um, one thing I, I got to admit kind of annoys me is when people uh, say that, well, don't worry about doing all these accessory lifts and doing all that volume. Let's talk when you can do chin-ups with 50% of your body weight added for six reps or when you can overhead press 220 pounds. And it's like inevitably, invariably, the people who say that, A, have really good genetics usually, and B, for most people, by the time they will get there, they will have had to do a lot of volume and they will also have to train for a number of years already. So it's kind of like you're saying that, well, let's talk when you have been training for a lot of years and you have been doing a lot of volume anyway. So it's like essentially you're getting to the same place whether or not you're just trying to get really, really strong in the moderate rep range or you're actually just chasing volume. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. So in terms of exercise selection, man, this one uh, I think many people – misunderstand especially for hypertrophy and they mistake uh strength for hypertrophy you know uh, they're not mutually exclusive, but if you want uh, exclusively hypertrophy, um, you know it doesn't really matter what exercise you use. Yes, sure, some exercises are better than others, and I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, you know this is actually a quote of mine, uh, funnily enough. But uh, hypertrophy is like a, a tension-dependent process, not an exercise-dependent process. So there are many exercises that you can put uh, that you can use, sorry, to put tension on the muscle. As a rule of thumb. I think it's a good idea to use free weight exercises for the most part, uh, you know, with your volume requirements for a specific muscle group. And generally, you know, 50% of your volume uh, 
should come from free weight multi-joint lifts, and I'll explain why shortly. Uh, 25%, you know, can come from like machine work, multi-joint lifts, so leg press, things like that. Uh, and then another 25% from single joint lifts. And they're not hard and fast rules, but I think that's just a really good uh, framework to sort of look at uh, exercise selection and whether or not uh, you have to perform a certain exercise before you can start including uh, machine work or isolation exercises. Yeah, I don't really... Uh, subscribe to that idea. Uh, you know, free weight multi-joint lifts, they're great because they work multiple muscle groups simultaneously and they increase efficiency. Uh, but the drawbacks of that are that some muscle groups just don't receive optimal stimulus to maximize hypertrophy. Uh, you know, for example, the lateral head of the delts, yeah, if you want to get good at overhead pressing, you've got to get stronger in the overhead press. But if you want to get bigger and have bigger delts and cap shoulders, well, you probably need to have some lateral raises in there. And also due to the larger skill component, like for most of these barbell lifts, uh, man, like it can take a really long time for people to get strong. And that's going to mean a really long time that they're not getting uh, a lot of stimulus uh, that's going to lead to growth, especially because it takes ages for people to come, you know, neurologically efficient in a lift um, in a way that they can then optimally stimulate muscle, especially to its full capacity. And generally, we run into the issue of people getting bored, they program hop, they swap out their exercises, so they just spin their wheels. And if they have these hard and fast rules that I can't do this exercise unless I can squat two times body weight or, you know, I can do pull-ups with 50% of my body weight attached to me, all those kind of things, it's like, well, you're going to spend a really long time, you know, detrimenting your gains, put it that way. And also, like, some compound lifts are highly leveraged dependent. So, like you said, while some people, you know, can definitely overhead press a stupid amount of weight, it's like, if you've got really long freaking arms, yeah, good luck, you know, overhead pressing, you know, more than one and a half times body weight. Like, that probably will never happen. Um, you know, I've got relatively good levers for uh, an overhead press and a barbell bench press. I don't think I've ever hit 100 kilos in an overhead press, um, but that doesn't mean that I don't do my lateral raises um, or anything like that. So, yeah, isolation exercises are great, um, and so are machines. You know, machines work multiple muscle groups, just like, you know, your uh, multi-joint exercises, uh, if they are a compounded exercise in nature. Uh, and they're very efficient because it doesn't take long to load up a leg press, especially if it's like a pin-loaded. Like, that's fantastic, easy to set up. And you get greater absolute loading, like you would in a barbell lift, but with uh, lower skill requirements as well. And I think that's really important to keep in mind, you know, when you're putting together a program, selecting exercises. Um, but yeah, uh, your single joint lifts, they're great as well because small learning curve, that means you can get maximal stimulus sooner, you can fill in the gaps from your compounds, um, and the lower load requirements uh, are often more joint friendly. And that's another thing that I think is overlooked in this volume uh, discussion is, you know, the impact of different exercises uh, on both stimulus and fatigue, uh, because not all exercises are created equally, and 10 sets of uh, you know squats is very different to 10 sets of leg extensions. And to go one further, if you take both of those 10 sets to an RPA 9, well, I guarantee you're going to have a lot uh, different stimulus, and you're going to have a lot more fatigue with one than the other. So yeah, we need to really think a little bit more deeper about the volume discussion uh, and the exercise selection discussion. And yeah, man, I think, uh, again, there's a lot of variables that influence the magnitude of stress, um, independent of the dose. So that is the volume. So the mechanics of the movement, like the force vectors, for example, number of joints used, the muscles that stress, uh, stress the most, the distribution of the tension and the length of the muscle when tension is highest, like the contraction type, whether it's concentric, isometric, eccentric. We know, we know that uh, eccentric contractions are going to have significantly more uh, muscle damage than you know your concentric contractions. Uh, the intensity of load as well, and also like the effort. So yeah, man. Uh, I hope I kind of uh, answered that sort of uh, spiel you had there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so speaking of the volume side of things again, I've I've heard from a couple of people and I've heard it from you as well that you've been playing around with some higher volume experiments uh, for jump starting growth or maybe breaking through plateaus. I've heard this being mentioned by James Krieger and Mike Isratel, like I said. So I would be interested in like how did some of these experiments of yours look like and what inspired them in the first place? Yeah, so what inspired uh, this uh, little experiment that I've had? I've had a couple of little experiments uh, over the last probably two or three years. Uh, yeah, thanks to James for sort of... Uh, giving me uh, a platform uh, to, to talk about this because he has uh, referenced me a couple of times. Um, and yeah, it's um, something that I, I have definitely 
tinkered with and seen varying uh, degrees of success. Um, but yeah, back in, I think it was, oh, this is going to test me now. What's last year, 2018? 2017. Uh, in 2017, I played around with uh, an arm specialization phase. So what I did was I increased my volume on my biceps and triceps, um, and I ran that cycle for oh, the better part of 10 months. And... I made some very, very good gains, and you know, I'm sure some of the listeners might have seen uh, the progress and I guess the before and after picture um, that uh, has been floating around the internet on James's website and stuff. Um, but yeah, it was very, very productive, and it highlighted to me that man, this uh, this volume thing, there's something to it, and I guess first there were a lot of mistakes that I made in my previous arm training, which kind of led to this rapid growth spurt, right? So it's not like I'm just this genius programmer or that volume was like this magic, you know, silver bullet. Um, you know, I'd done powerlifting uh, in 2016, which meant that I was training my arms once a week with three to six sets, so maintenance volumes at best. Um, and I had like one exercise uh, for the biceps and I had two to three exercises uh, for the triceps because obviously in powerlifting, you have uh, obviously more pressing requirements and you need stronger triceps. So I was doing a little bit more uh, direct tricep work. But the mistakes in uh, these programs, I guess, uh, from a hypertrophy uh, standpoint was that I, I wasn't doing much at all and I was looking to progress load uh, and reps and I didn't really have any other sort of uh, progression schemes in place. Um, but then what I did do when I uh, got into this arm specialization phase was that I started to slowly increase my direct arm training stimulus and I started to split that across uh, three to five sessions per week. And what I did there was uh, not only did I use more volume, so I started to get up to, you know, I worked up from literally like eight, I think, uh, in the first mesocycle, and then it was uh, 10, 12, and I think I got up to around, uh, yeah, 15 sets uh, for biceps and triceps. This is direct training, so, um, you know, there was probably a little bit more from the indirect stuff, uh, which I'll talk about shortly, but I split this up over three to five sessions. So I was doing, you know, maybe four sets uh, for biceps each session. So, you know, we know through some of James Krieger's in-house meta-analytic data that uh, there seems to be this like per session cap for volume with uh, plateau and regression after 10 sets for a muscle group within a single session. Uh, so I never sort of exceeded that, um, which I didn't really know at the time, but it just, it made sense because I was like, well, I can't do 10 sets of biceps in one session and 10 sets of triceps and get some other training in um, and only do that twice a week. Like that's just flogging a dead horse. Like I intuitively knew that um, because I've trained for a very long time and I've trained a lot of people and, you know, doing that much direct bicep work in a single session after you've done, you know, a couple of rowing exercises, maybe some uh, pull downs or something like that. Um, it just didn't make sense to me. So anyway, that was like the basic setup. Uh, but most importantly was that I varied the exercises within the micro cycle from session to session. So I didn't perform the same exercises uh, from one session to the next. I incorporated a wide, wider variety of exercises. So I had, uh, you know, single arm high cable curls for my biceps which was training the biceps in uh, shoulder flexion, which is a very different stimulus uh, to when you train them uh, in shoulder extension with your inclined dumbbell, uh, sorry, yeah, your inclined dumbbell curls. Um, you know, the inclined dumbbell curls are way more fatiguing, a little bit more stressful on the shoulders. Um, and then I had some other dumbbell uh, and barbell variations in there. And then for the triceps, very similar kind of setup. I had overhead uh, extension work, so in shoulder flexion, which, yeah, a little bit more fatiguing, but it gets a bit more of the long head. And then I had uh, my pushdowns in uh, shoulder extension, and that gets, a, you know, slightly a little bit more of the lateral head and the medial head, for example. But most importantly, my hand positions were always changing, and I used a lot of the stirrups. So, again, basic gym terminology, the stirrups are like the handles that are very flexible. So your hands aren't fixed into a certain position. And this was really important because later down the track, um, I tried to replicate a similar uh, arm specialization phase and I was lazy and I just used barbells and easy bars and within like six weeks, holy shit, my wrists, my elbows and my shoulders were absolutely cooked and it just highlighted to me that again, not all volume is created equally and there are so many other important factors that we need to think about when we 
when we look at a program outside of volume, it's like volume's important, sure, but it's like it's only as important as your ability to get that ten- tension to the muscle without you know causing a shit ton of uh, you know connective tissue stress, uh, you know systemic fatigue, residual fatigue that impairs subsequent training sessions and your ability to provide an overwhelming stimulus, all that kind of stuff. So anyway. It was really cool, um, and yeah, I learned a lot. And the primary thing uh, that uh, I did in that arm specialization phase was pro- uh, focus on rep progression. Uh, so I focused on you know adding reps and meeting my relative RPE. So my sets were slowly ramped up, not in a weekly fashion, a la Mike Isratel. It was more of a, cool, I'm going to try this, keep it there, try to add reps, meet my relative intensities, and when I feel like I'm plateauing uh, or I'm, you know, just not growing or the stimulus is just not as potent as what it was and I'm recovering okay, I'm not too sore, all those sorts of things and I've got time for it. I think that's a really often overlooked component of adding volume. It's like, do you have fucking time to do it uh, and, and have a life outside of the gym? Um, you know, I'll add in just a little bit more and I did that and yeah, holy crap, man. I got some really good games. Um, you know, I got actually called out in 2012 uh, for having really small arms on social media. Like someone actually said, like, you don't even lift um, because my biceps were so small. Um, and by the end of this freaking, like, it was 10 months, um, you know, that I ran this thing for, um, yeah, people were questioning whether I was natty. So it was pretty cool. Um, but then to sort of, and mind you, I was in a calorie surplus this entire time. I was not dieting. I had pretty good life situation uh, in terms of my work, my family life. I had little uh, children who were, you know, basically they were not needing their dad much. You know, I could just go to work, go train, and you know, give my partner partner a chop out when I needed to. You know, life was in a pretty good spot. Um, fast forward to last year, and holy shit, my life, my stress uh, was not in the same place. Um, and I couldn't train with those kind of volumes and I wasn't recovering. So, you know, it's really context dependent. Um, but anyway, a really cool piece of anecdote, um, that I sort of realized last year that when I was, uh, beginning working with Brian Miner, um, for some powerlifting and again, slightly different goals, but you know, and I knew this as well, but he was the one who really brought it to my attention was that my legs do not require much volume to progress at all. I was using between six to nine sets for my quads per week. Uh, for quite a while, and I was making linear progressions in my repetition strength in the moderate rep ranges. Like I was, you know, squatting 200 kilos for reps. Uh, you know, my hack squats were going up, and he's just like, "Holy shit, man! Your legs grow like weeds, and your upper body grows like a cactus." And my bench press, we just had keep, we had to keep titrating, uh, you know, volume in because like it just didn't fucking grow. Like it just wasn't getting stronger. My bench press was stalled. I had to add more, add more, add more, and then we finally busted through. Um, but again, it just goes to show that not only is it context dependent, like your nutrition, your stress, uh, your time availability, but it's also muscle group dependent. You know, some muscle groups that just seem, uh, to me, not only with my own anecdote, but all my clients that I've worked with, you know, some people just have muscles that grow a little bit better and don't need as much. And they have others that are a little bit more stubborn and potentially for those stubborn muscle groups. Um, yeah, a little bit more volume seems to be the, a good choice provided that those exercises you're using to get that volume don't have uh, significant trade-offs or implications for your ability to put that tension from that volume on that muscle and you can get some good pumps, you can get the stimulus where it needs to go um, and you can recover and overload that stimulus moving forward. So yeah, I guess that's uh, it. If you've got questions on that, we can sort of talk about that, man. Yeah, a lot of uh, cool things to pick up on there. But uh, one one note that I want to make is that it's interesting that you mentioned that your legs are a body part that just don't require that much volume because it's pretty evident looking at your pictures that your quads are one of your best body part. And it's interesting because uh, oftentimes the people that are big and natural, oftentimes they don't do a lot of volume. And I guess there is a relationship there potentially that these people just have a low threshold for volume. Like I'm thinking here of people like Jeff Alberts, Martin Burkan, who uh, I think there's a very good chance that they are natural, or at least I do believe that they are natural. Anyway, uh, they don't do a lot of volume and they are, you know, have a bigger natural muscularity than most people will ever have. And that's the case for you and your quads, for example. And uh, then for your upper body, you require more volume. So that's just an interesting uh, confirmation there of that phenomenon, right? Yeah, exactly, man. I think uh, we've seen that quite a lot. You know, I, I had a client in a contest prep uh, last year, Abel, this is a really cool piece of anecdote. Um, so he was intended, intending to compete in men's physique. So he was going to wear board shorts, which meant that he didn't really need to have his legs. But he'd worked with me for nearly a year and a half in the off season. And we'd always trained, you know, legs, 
two times a week and it was never a huge focus but um he liked to train legs he came from a really athletic background he's got pretty good genetics not fantastic but pretty decent like he's got a long frame um but you know some pretty decent muscle mass uh you know from for where he's at in his training career and in his contest prep uh you know i tried to be creative with how I put together the program and I thought, well, we don't need you to have legs, so let's free up some adaptive currency uh, and train your legs just once a week to sort of break things up um, and we can then have, you know, more resources to go towards uh, maintaining uh, and preserving tissue in his upper body, which was a little bit, uh, you know, behind his lower body development. Um, Well, it turns out training his legs once a week with anywhere from five to eight sets per muscle group uh, within that week, uh, he maintained nearly all of his leg size so much so that it got to four weeks out and he was like, you know, dick skin lean uh, that we said, fuck it, let's do bodybuilding. And he entered a bodybuilding show as well as a physique show in a different federation on a different weekend. And he won the junior uh, state title uh, in bodybuilding and he went on to come third in the opens and he freaking dominated and he trained his legs once a week. And again, I think, yeah, it was crazy. And I think that just goes to show that, yeah, there's potentially a genetic component uh, to this muscle retention thing. And hey, maybe when we want to maintain muscle, we don't need to do anywhere near as much as we think. Um, it's more so the insecurity of not doing enough that uh, forces us to do way more. Uh, so that was a really cool piece of anecdote um, that I sort of stumbled across. And it has really, uh, yeah, made me think long and hard about, you know, how I approach things uh, for the people and their muscle groups that are, that are really uh, well-developed and, uh, you know, those muscle groups that are potentially lagging or a little bit stubborn. Right. Uh, now, speaking of, um, you know, bringing up a muscle group and doing more volume for your arms, for example, like how important do you think it is that you keep other muscle groups at more moderate volumes or maybe even potentially reduce the volume or maybe to flip the question around, you know, for how many muscle groups do you think you can kind of increase the volume more drastically over a shorter time frame uh, at one time? Yeah, that, that is a really good question. And I would say that it depends on the level of advancement of the individual. Uh, for example, uh, I have a lot of uh, bikini girls who are, you know, early intermediates and like, hey, I want to build really big booties, uh, but they're kind of undeveloped every, underdeveloped everywhere. And it's like, we can do a little bit more glute work, but we can pretty much keep everything else where it is um, because they're not towards their genetic ceiling yet. They've got a lot of uh, room to move in that sense. Um, but for individuals who are way more advanced uh, and have lagging body parts, uh, it's probably a really good idea to uh, bring down the volume uh, for their stronger muscle groups um, whilst they increase the volume for those lagging muscle groups. And again, this is going to depend massively on which muscle groups they're increasing the volume for um, and the implications that has on subsequent muscle groups. For example, if you need to bring up your delts uh, and you want to increase the amount of volume you do on your delts, well, I dare say the amount of uh, pressing work that you're doing is going to have to come down a little bit because we know that the delts uh, you know, play a role in our in our pressing work. Um, however, if you want to bring up, uh, say, your calves, uh, that's not really going to have too many implications on many things. Maybe uh, exercises such as your hamstrings, if you're doing like RDLs and deadlifts and you're getting like tightness, maybe uh, even your squats, you know, getting into deep ankle dorsiflexion if you're always, you know, sore in the calves can be a little bit of a pain in the ass. But for the most part, that shouldn't be too much of an issue. Um, but again, what I did when I perform this arm specialization phase was I biased the volume from my other exercises towards the muscle groups that I wanted to pick up. And what I mean by that is instead of doing flat barbell bench press, I did high incline barbell bench press with a closer grip. So there was more tension on my triceps uh, and a little bit less on the chest. So it was less fatiguing on the chest uh, and more fatiguing on the triceps. I also uh, swapped to uh, dips instead of like a flat dumbbell press, uh, again, which is just a little bit more triceps. I then uh, altered my uh, pull-up hand position. I used a supinated grip uh, that, again, a little bit more stimulus on the biceps. Same for my pull-downs and my rows. Instead of having like a neutral grip, I did some underhand work. So I really started to push everything towards, uh, you know, my biceps and triceps. And that just reduced the amount of tension that I could get on, you know, my upper back. And without having to reduce the volume per se of those muscle groups, the amount of tension stimulus that was there was slightly reduced because the exercises I chose biased the amount of tension stimulus 
stimulus towards the muscle groups I wanted to pick up. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's one way to go about it. But I definitely think that if you're wanting a more simplistic approach uh, and you don't have that good an understanding of, uh, you know, kinesiology, biomechanics, uh, human movement um, and whatnot, then it's probably just a safe bet uh, to bring down the muscle groups that you're not prioritizing just ever so slightly. Uh, not so much so that, uh, yeah, your training just becomes unenjoyable because it's fun to train different types of muscle groups. You know, training one muscle group and having such a heavy focus in every single session for example, uh, you know, the, towards that priority muscle group, that can be really monotonous and lead to a lot of, you know, staleness and boredom. Like, you know, how many times can you do a bicep curl without getting bored, right? Uh, but that's where variation becomes a little bit more important because you can maintain uh, the connective tissue integrity, but also the motivation to train. Um, but again, I think it's probably just a good idea to bring the volume down, you know, maybe towards the lower ends of what you know uh, will lead to a growth stimulus. So if you've been making like slow gains on say 10 sets per week, uh, for a particular muscle group, um, and you ramped it up, for example, to like 15 sets per week for that muscle group, and then you say, hey, I want to prioritize another muscle group, instead of jumping back down to 10, you might go to 12, see how that goes. If you find that overall it's becoming a logistical issue to get enough volume for that priority muscle group, or potentially it's impeding your recovery, or there might be some residual fatigue that impairs your performance and the quality of work you get for the priority muscle, maybe bring it down again. But again, it should be this process of assessing and refining, not just adjusting shit for the sake of adjusting it. I think that's a huge problem. When you write a program, you should be sitting down thinking about what did I do and think across the time continuum. So think about your previous data, what that's shown you, then you know use the evidence-based model as like this overarching concept to guide your decision-making. So the research, your experience and your needs, look at the current context, uh, relative to your prior history uh, using the evidence-based model and then make projections as to what's going to lead to the best possible outcome. And you can categorize things into four really simple uh, you know, decisions that you make. You have a high confidence of a positive outcome and if you, if you have uh, you know, the available decisions and you think that it's a good idea and that there's minimal chance that it's going to lead to a shitty outcome, then pursue it. If you have high confidence of a negative outcome, maybe that's something you should avoid. And if you have low confidence of a positive outcome or low confidence of a, a negative outcome, maybe you should consider that. But I think when you're making decisions about what to do with training volume, exercise selection, so on and so forth, a really useful conceptual model that I've sort of come up with uh, is again to think along that time continuum uh, historical data moving into the current context project an outcome and use your your individual biofeedback your experience uh, and the best available research to inform uh, you know those decisions that you do make yeah that, that was an excellent rundown and uh, yeah I guess to kind of wrap up slowly here uh, just out of curiosity the recent research and data that's came out on uh, volume and its role in hypertrophy. Did you modify the kind of starting volumes that you're giving to some of your clients or um, at least you're thinking in terms of how aggressively you might be adding in volume to someone's program depending on, on progress? Yeah. Are you talking about uh, the Barbero paper? Is that the one? I forget the name of it. The one that just came out that had 5, 10 and 20 sets per muscle group within a session and they saw... Uh, muscle loss uh, in the really high volume groups over six months. Is that the one you're referring to? Oh, uh, no, but uh, yeah, I know which one you mean. That that one was definitely interesting. I, I actually, well, that might be actually a counterpoint to all of this. I meant the the classic ones that we've been talking about for months now, the Schoenfeld people, the Radieli one before. Yes, cool. Um, yeah, it's provided food for thought, but I look at the Schoenfeld paper and I just see so many uh, logistical issues and uh, it's just not very pragmatic for the people I work with. Um, but in terms of how I go about um, setting up volume requirements for someone who I just start working with, um, firstly, I don't just use the research and the recommendations from the research. I look to what they're using currently. And I'm in a position where the people who I work with are generally intermediates, late intermediates, or advanced. So I'm not working with beginners. Um, and I'll assess their current training programs, and I'll see the setup, so the volumes, the intensities, the frequencies, and that's all great. But then I also get uh, lifting footage, so to see their technique on all their lifts and whether or not they're actually making use of the current volumes that they're using. So I think this is, again, a hugely overlooked component of volume recommendations. You could be training with 20 sets uh, for your quads, but if you're squatting partial reps, uh, you know, you're using light loads and you're just, you know, wimping out, you're not getting close to failure. It's like, 
that's just junk volume. That's not doing anything. And it could be like, oh, yeah, he's not making gains. You know, you need to do more volume. You know, that's what the research is suggesting. It's like, no, he probably needs even less volume. He needs to tidy up his technique. He needs to learn how to move properly because that's what people often forget is that, you know, when we're in the gym, granted, it's not a highly technical sport uh, like Olympic weightlifting or something like soccer and football. Um, but at the same time, it's like moving your body is still a skill. You need to have sufficient, uh, you know, proficiency in the movements that you're performing to be able to load them, to be able to stimulate the muscles, and then get growth. So when I'm looking to devise volumes for someone, I want to be 110% certain that they're getting everything right within the session, within the movements that they're performing for a muscle group before I even look at volume. That is the first step that I take before I adjust training volume. If they are ticking all of those boxes, then I will start to look at other factors such as their sleep, their nutrition, you know, uh, their lifestyle, all of that stuff. And yes, if their sleep's good, their nutrition's good, uh, you know, their lifestyle is conducive to making gains, their technique's great, uh, they're executing, they're training well, and their program's not horrible. It's like, okay, maybe they might need a little bit more volume, but you can see how many steps you've got to go through and how many things uh, need, how many boxes need to be ticked before you go adding volume. So uh, yeah, in terms of volume requirements, it's very, very uh, holistic. Uh, I hate that word, but the, the approach I take uh, towards uh, addressing volume requirements for my clients, you, you can't look at volume in a vacuum. There is so many other factors that influence volume that need to be considered um, when we have this discussion and we put pen to paper and we say, you're going to do 20 sets for your quads every week, man. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's well said. Um, cool, man. Uh, you dropped a lot of awesome information here. And just for my final question, since I asked this from all the people that I interviewed on this topic, uh, like what were your sort of volume landmarks uh, throughout your training career? Like uh, what's... You mentioned that your quads and your legs in general are responding to lower volumes. Uh, so how high did you ever have to go for any given muscle group to make good progress? And then how low could you stay for any of them to still make progress? Yeah, so I think my legs are a really interesting one because I actually always wanted really skinny legs, Abel, <laughs> when I was younger because I, because I always had these chunky legs and I used to get chafe and I didn't like them. So I started running and, you know, footballers uh, for Australian rules football have to be able to run really far. They have to be fast both, uh, you know, in an anaerobic sense, but also have uh, high aerobic capacity and having big chunky legs uh, isn't really conducive to that. So I always really wanted skinny legs. Um, but then I sort of started training my legs. I was like, hey, I like this and I'm a bit of a masochist. So um, I liked the pain and suffering that came with that, mostly because, you know, I had body image issues and just wanted to punish myself and I thought that I burnt more calories training legs, but that's a story for another day. Um, so when I first started training my legs, I thought, oh, I'll burn more calories if I train my legs twice a week. And I thought the whole, uh, you know, hormone response from legs hypothesis was, you know, ha had credence and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, I trained my legs twice a week and I was using fucking stupidly high volumes. I was using like 10 sets uh, per session uh, for quads and hamstrings and my legs freaking blew up. And they were just like, they were huge. But I was training every other muscle group once a week. And my upper body was tiny, right? Um, but then down the track, once I'd sort of like built all that muscle and tissue on my legs, uh, when I started using like moderate volumes, so maybe like, you know, anywhere from, uh, yeah, 10 to maybe 15 sets per week uh, for my quads and my hamstrings, uh, I kept getting really good growth, really good growth. Um, and then now I'm still, again, eking out progress, uh, albeit a little bit slower, but that sort of suits my lifestyle now because I don't have the time to dedicate towards, you know, six sessions a week anymore, really long training. It's like, I just need to be selective and if I can make gains, you know, I can make gains, that's great. Um, and they're not a weak point, so it doesn't really matter to me too much. Um, yeah, I can get away with five to 10 sets on my legs. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know, don't really know what to make of it as yet, um, but that's been the, the time course of my leg training volume. My upper body, as you started to see, was kind of the opposite. I was training with bro splits, way too much volume within a session. Like I'm talking like 20, I did flat dumbbell press, incline dumbbell press, high incline dumbbell press, low cable flies, you know, moderate uh, or mid-level cable flies, high cable flies. Like I did fucking everything in a session, and because I wanted to get rid of my man boobs, uh, so I trained my chest with like stupidly high volumes, and it kind of grew a little bit. But then I didn't see any growth for years and years and years. Uh, then I started to train for like powerlifting, benching two to three times a week, and I saw way better growth. My my tits just uh, blew up. I was like fucking Pamela Anderson. They were just boom. Um, 
but but yeah, I, I started to notice with my upper body higher frequencies uh, with like moderate per session volumes, anywhere from say four to ten sets uh, per session. Um, you know, sort of like you know titrating it up and down as I needed, depending on whether I wanted to focus on a muscle, de-emphasize a muscle, all that sort of stuff uh, has worked really really well. And I think yeah, the highest I've got my arms up to was like again fifteen direct sets per week, uh, and that'd be pretty much similar for my uh, my chest, my back, and all that sort of stuff, up around fifteen to twenty sets per week. Uh, and I've seen some great results there for my upper body yeah super cool to hear so not nothing crazy crazy high um not, nothing north of 20 sets yeah not yet hopefully never yeah one, one random question for the end uh you mentioned that for your arm specialization cycle you've been doing uh, like four sets, uh, like four to f five times a week or three to five times a week. Um, generally these days, like how many sets for a given muscle group do you like to cram in into a single session? And like what, what would be the minimum number you would recommend and what would be the maximum number you would recommend? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the minimum uh, number per uh, session is going to be dependent on, um, you know, my energy balance state. So if I'm dieting, uh, I generally adhere to Mike Isratel's volume landmarks and the concepts uh, related to how dieting implicates our volume landmarks. So when we're in an energy deficit, we generally see our maintenance volume come up because we see net increases uh, in catabolism, meaning that we're at a higher risk of losing muscle. We need to do more to maintain our muscle, but we also see a reduction in our recovery abilities so we can actually tolerate less uh, both within a session within a week. So if I'm dieting uh, in a fat loss phase, I'll generally use four to eight sets per muscle group uh, within a session, and I'll increase my frequency a little bit, uh, again, to offset the uh, potential uh, loss of tissue. So uh, I'll train with like maybe two to three times a week per muscle group, four to eight sets uh, per session for those muscle groups. But if I'm in a surplus, anywhere from like three to eight sets uh, within a session, uh, sometimes a little up towards uh, 10 sets uh, per session. But uh, but again, I see a massive, personally, a massive drop-off uh, after 10 sets uh, in just my energy levels, man, my focus. I'm like distracted. I'm like, come on, I got sh I got shit to do. I got to see my kids. I got to work. It's like, you know, I know I can get pretty damn good results uh, with anywhere from like, you know, three to eight sets uh, within a workout per muscle group, generally two times a week, um, you know, when I'm eating at a surplus and I'm you know, carrying a bit of body fat, nice and hefty. Yeah, excellent. Uh, awesome, man. Um, thank you so much for dropping all this great knowledge. I pretty much asked you all my questions. Uh, is there something I definitely should have asked you and I didn't? No, no, I think you asked some really good questions, man. I hope I answered everything uh, thoroughly and uh, the listeners enjoyed. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much again. And so, yeah, just please let people know where they can find Anything cool that you've got going on? Any new projects? I know you're, um, you have some interesting things coming up and exciting things coming up. So, yeah, mention everything you wish. Yeah, thanks, Abel. Uh, yeah, let's uh, sell out and plug away. Um, <laughs> no, I've uh, yeah got a lot uh, going on. Uh, I have JPS Education, which is just uh, an off set from uh, JPS Health and Fitness, which is our coaching company. Um, our coaches are doing a lot of good work. We're, we're actually uh, revamping our online coaching systems now, so we're going to be uh, able to work with a lot more people uh, from around the world, which is really cool. So if you want online coaching uh, from myself or the coaches, I will have a few places available. Uh, but apart from that, uh, the education side of things, we've got our mentorship course for personal trainers or anyone looking to learn more about lifting coming up in September. So enrollment's open. Uh, we do a bunch of workshops and seminars. I'm actually coming over to the UK, um, so out to Europe. Uh, in July on the 14th with Revive Stronger, Steve Hall and Pascal, and Lyndon Purcell from JPS. And uh, we'll be talking all about contest prep. We're also stopping off at Singapore uh, to do two-day hypertrophy seminar. And yeah, that's about it from me, man. Damn, I envy your life. No, you um, don't believe me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it sounds intense and exciting, but yeah, it will be an exhausting um, trip around the world, but um, it's going to be satisfying for sure. No, I'm really excited, very excited. Um, awesome, and uh, thank you so much for doing this, Jacob. It was a pleasure talking to you. Not a problem, Abel. Thanks for having me, man. All right, guys. I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Jacob. And if you did, then I would really appreciate if you could drop me a five-star rating on iTunes under the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast, because quite frankly, it will help me rank higher amongst other podcasts, get more recognition for the podcast, and ultimately, that will help me to keep making interviews like this for free and get on more quality guests that are willing to come onto this podcast and provide great value and information for you guys. And we can all enjoy 
enjoy listening to interviews like this for years to come. So if you want to help me make that happen, then please consider dropping that five-star rating on iTunes. I'm not asking you to leave some long comment or something like that. I know that would take too much time, but just drop that five-star rating and I will be super, super grateful for you. So thank you very much in advance. And once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And with that, see you next time. Thank you.